is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 141 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Mary Buckham all about how to write better settings. Normally, this is where we would dive into last week's question and this week's question and the book recommendation and my personal update and all of the rest of it. But as I mentioned last week, uh, when I was due to record this, I was living at large in New York and Washington, D.C. If you would like to keep up with my adventures, then you can, uh, because I will be sharing lots and lots of pictures and things on Instagram at Sasha Black author. So for now, we have no um, Rebel of the Week and no patron update either. Uh, But of course, a gigantic thank you to all of my existing patrons. And if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a ton of bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, I'm going to leave it there because (laughs) I've already updated you today. on last week's episode Uh, and I look forward to hopefully being fully refreshed and full of beans next week so I can update you on on all of the trip and everything else. I I hope you have a fantastic writing week and uh, I will be back with more next week. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Mary Buckham. Mary is a USA Today bestselling author. She learned to get into and out of trouble at a very early age. Time has added to her opportunities. Detained by Israeli intelligence, strip searched by a Greek border patrol while traveling with a priest sneaking into Laos. (laughs) I need to ask about this, by the way. (laughs) When not personally avoiding nuisances caused by her insatiable curiosity, she creates lots of disorder in her two urban fantasy series, Alex Nosiak and Kelly McAllister, as well as her co-authored young adult sci-fi action adventure series under the name Micah Kader. In her spare time, Mary writes writing craft books, including a writer's guide to active setting, which I've read, writing active hooks, which I own, and break into fiction co-authored with Diana Love. Hello and welcome. Well, thank you so much, Thatcher, for having me here. I'm excited. You're most welcome. Thank you for joining me. And I see, not that not that listeners can see, but behind you, you have a lovely banner with new covers, because those aren't the covers I think that I've got. Because these were the original covers when I released them in ebook format. Ah. And then for the setting book, a publisher approached me and asked if they could publish that. Which oh, wow. A different cover for the print version. And there is a hook version cover to differentiate from these individual books. Ah, I love it. Detained by Israeli intelligence. Um, what? <laughs> I need to know because Israeli like military is terrifying. My grandma is uh, Israeli and lives in Jerusalem. And I've flown in a couple of times and you don't fuck about when you go to Israel. So like what? I need to know this story. <laughs> well, I had previously been in Egypt and I'd gone through the markets and I bought my brother a hookah pipe 
thinking, oh, he'll really appreciate that. But then I also wanted to buy curry because I wasn't smart enough to know that curry is not necessarily a thing. It is a combination of different things. So they tried to sell me, of course, there was no I did not know Arabic. They did not know English. And we were pointing and pointing and pointing. They pointed to the hair. No, I don't want henna. I want curry. And so I pointed to my mouth. So they gave me a little package of white powder and wrapped it in newspaper. And off I went. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The Israelis were not as pleased as I was about my purchases, and I couldn't understand why they were going ape shit. Um, <laughs> and I was explaining to them that it made perfect sense. I got this for that. And because I, of the hookah pipe and the white powder, they assumed I was a drug mule <sighs> or something. So it took a while to get through that border. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And I take it like you managed to explain your way out of it. I think they figured I was too dumb <laughs> or too clueless to have an idea what was going on. They were all standing there with their guns pointed at me. <gasps> yeah. And oh my goodness me. I was interested to know what kind of guns they had. <laughs> <laughs> no lady, you are in trouble. Yeah. But while you're here, I'd like to have this information. So Yes, it was that a little is, longer to get through than I expected. That is one hell of a story to start with. Wow. <laughs> okay. So don't well. crap with me. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to tell everyone a little bit more about you? <laughs> how did you? How did you get to where? <laughs> how did you get to where you are today? Well, I walked from the other room and I sat. There. <laughs> Writing journey, writing journey. Like a lot of people, a lot of writers, we start with stories in our heads and we assume everybody else has stories. Um, and it was fine to keep the story in my head. And, but I didn't fit in in a lot of other traditional job trajectory occupations. I tried accounting, I tried international banking, I tried, and I, liked some of them, but most of them were pretty boring and pretty, and I realized I was going counter to who and what I was, that I really wanted to write. So I sat down and started writing. And it, it sounds simple, but it's not, because there's a long time between writing and writing for publication mm. and all the learning process to get to that point. Um, but I had the best time management tools in the business. I had five kids under the age of eight. Oh, wow. They were, you know, if you did not figure out how to make it happen, they were going to be a good excuse not to get it done. So um, I would borrow my neighbor's four kids. And then when I sent her four kids home, and I just had the five left. It was like, oh, it's so much quieter. I can write now. So, it's, <laughs> if you have a will, you can find a way. And that is amazing. <laughs> listening to this, because I often hear people who will say, but I have a child or I have two children, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what are you teaching your child 
if you're not following your own dream and making it happen. Oh, you have no idea how much I love hearing that because it wasn't until I had my son that I was like, oh shit, like I need to prove to him that you can do whatever you want. And like, that was the, like I had been skirting around writing for for a while before I sort of got pregnant. And then when I got pregnant, I was like, shit, like I actually cannot be this miserable in a day job with a child because that is not what I want him to see. And yeah, like I think by the time he was, what, what year is it now? What year is it now? It's 2022. I have no idea. I think it's 20. It's almost two years post pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So by the time he was five, I was working for myself full time. So, yeah. yeah it's just <sighs> a different opportunity for them to not only have you around, but also have you around doing something that is not all about them. Mm. But it's so hard, though, don't you think? Like plagued with guilt because parent, like parent guilt, I always find. There's going to be guilt regardless, especially if you have, you know, Jewish genes, if you have Catholic genes, if you have mother genes, um, <laughs> it all comes with the territory. And yeah. so, again, it's an opportunity to learn how to deal with that guilt. I love that. Oh, I love this conversation already. <laughs> We're not even into the questions. <laughs> Okay, so I, I wanted to talk about setting and, uh, and active settings and, and also hooks a little bit. So I wondered if we could just start with the basics. What is the difference between, like, well, what is an active setting? And what is the difference between a non-active setting and an active setting? An active setting is something that pulls you into the story on a different level. You feel that you are there and present with your characters. So what happens then for the reader is they get a totally different experience from reading that kind of story than from reading a story that is just generic in the sense that there's a tree, there's a building, there's a house. But you know yourself in real life, you walk out your door and the types of houses that you're seeing are not going to be the type of houses I'm seeing or the type of mountain is not the same at all. And as writers, we have a tendency to forget that. So mm. when we say big mountain, as a reader, it just flies right over our head. We don't experience it at all. So we're getting a one-dimensional read. We're telling the reader the story, but how do we get in the emotion? How do we show the conflict? How do we reveal backstory for a character without basically, er, stop the story. I'm going to give you some backstory about my character. And setting can do all those things. That is fascinating to me. How can setting reveal backstory? Because I, I like as a writer myself, like I, I completely like the emotion and the mood, but backstory. I wanna, I wanna hear about this. How can, how can setting play with backstory? Backstory is actually instead of doing whole chunks of narrative to explain, I had a rough childhood, or, or. You know, I'm afraid of bears because one ran me up a tree or that type of thing. You explain it through the larger context of the story. So the person who is excited about an ocean or about a lake or a water or a mountain 
is a different person than the one who has grown up with them. And all they see is I'm isolated because this mountain means every time I have to go over six passes to get anywhere, it's, it's a pain in the backside. Um, so that's a little bit about backstory. How do they feel? What do they value? What do they put on their shelves? Mm. What do they, are they attracted to? Um, all of that is part of our backstory and can be revealed in small incremental ways through the experience of feeling comfortable in a place or feeling uncomfortable in a place mm. simply because of where they came from and what they experienced. I love that so much. That, that, that now makes complete sense to me. I talk about... Um... I guess a concept called the hero lens. So you've obviously heard of rose tinted spectacles and I feel like every hero has their own tint of spectacle and it's in that unique tint that they will have opinions on or, you know, describe things in a way that no other character will. will. And so that now makes complete sense that they would do that uh, also with setting. So like what, what are the basic steps to making setting more active and more engaging for um, a reader? Well, the first step is to understand what's the intention of showing the setting. Because a lot of us start out writing and we think we have to describe every room or we have to rush our characters through where they are, the context. But since setting can actually show characterization, it can deepen the point of view um, for the reader to experience the story. It can foreshadow that complications are coming. It shows emotion. Um, it can anchor the reader into who this person is and where they are. Um, it can impact your pacing. If you put too much setting in the wrong place, the story is going to slow. But if you know that as somebody is running through a building um, and bullets are flying, which they may not be flying as much in England, but they definitely are in the US here. Um, they're not gonna be noticing the architectural details, even though the author loves that thing about this particular building. So they, these are all things, um, if you're writing a story or a series that that setting matters to that and those characters. So if it is set in Wales, Wales has a very different setting than uh, the borders with Scotland that has a different setting than the seaside. All sorts of different um, impact everything about the story. But how to write that, you have to be more intentional instead of simply writing building, tree, uh, going down the street. Um, I remember once I was Zooming with a writer from England. He was by Bristol. And we just pulled off the road so we could talk to him. And it happened to be, we were in Colorado with the Rocky Mountains behind us. And he had never seen mountains like that. And he could not actually even talk because he was so enamored. He called in his wife, he called in his kids, look at these mountains. Because, and to my husband and I, all we were thinking was, yeah, it's, it's snowing up there right now. So we're gonna have to face that going over the next pass. 
And it was a totally different experience. I, you know, 15 minutes after we ended the call, I doubt he could tell you a word we talked about, except for those mountains. And that was what good setting can do, but it has to be intentional. It has to be appropriate to the story that you're writing and not because you as the reader or the writer are gonna describe every tree like a pine tree. When there's what, 87 varieties of pine trees? Um, you know, when you travel someplace new, you see different things, a different world, and it's the setting that alerts you first and foremost. So what are some of the ways that a writer would know that they uh, that that is an appropriate time to or to be to 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 be more put, uh, put more depth in or like what are the ways to know that a character like how what am I how am I trying to explain this so you talk about the intentionality of it and that it's got to be character driven that's what I'm hearing so like when are those times like how do you be more intentional what is it you're looking for either in character or in the plot or like yeah how do you know when to be more intentional well you're going to be intentional as the story is opening in order to bring the reader deeper into the story right from the beginning. So you can't just say desert. You have to give some more information. Whenever your character is transitioning from one place to another, be thinking, how do, are they familiar with this place? And if so, what is their memory of it? What do they associate with mm -hmm. it as you show it as setting? Um, whereas another character in the story who has never been to that place, they're going to have a different response to it. Maybe they think they've gotten to the most hick town in the universe where the other person loves their hometown. It's the same place. And so it is letting the reader deeper into the larger story context. It's not simply about moving characters around on the page. You go here, you go there. Hi, how are you? Go away. Um, so first draft through, don't worry about it. Second draft through, start thinking, who is this character and how do they feel about this place and how do I show it? Um, who is this other character and what is their experience? Are they changing as a character? Oftentimes you can show how they relate to the place, to the setting of it. So a lot of writers just assume that world building means you're writing sci-fi fantasy, urban fantasy, something with a more exotic. But everything that we write is world building because every character that we write experiences the world in a different way. Yeah, and setting is a character or you can make it a character. I read um, uh, Under the Whispering Door by TJ Klune this year. I don't know if you've heard of it or read it. Um, and it's basically the whole story happens more or less in one house and so like a kind of tea shop and because of that the whole property is a character in, in itself and so it's just so magical um okay so I think like what are some of the mistakes that writers make when trying to to be more 
like active um I, this this is a question that comes from cassie uh, who's one of my patrons and and she like more specifically says what mistakes do you see that authors make when they assume they're writing more actively but they're actually not is there something they should look out for they should look out for what is that intention of that particular scene so that they're not impacting the pacing by putting too much setting the two most common issues with writers is they don't put any setting in and make it just assume that if you say a mall that the reader knows because they're thinking about a specific mall in their head or they're thinking about a mountain or they're thinking big or a little. Those terms don't mean anything to us. If that, what you're looking for is are you putting any setting in, or are you just racing your characters to get to the next cool thing you want them to dialogue or whatever you are um, having them do? Or are you putting in too much setting? This is particularly problematic uh, for writers that like writing historicals um, and they love history. So they walk you into a room and you find out about the spinning wheel and the spinet and the the whatchamacallit and the who dumber thingy. Um, and then you find out it's never gonna show up in the story again. So when you're writing setting, it is you are focusing the reader on this matters. Okay. So if you walk through an alley and it scares you and it's very problematic and that's kind of, and you give a little bit, then later when you have to run down that alley in the middle of the night, you don't have to do a whole lot of setting details at that point because you've already set it up. But if every little detail is described because it's fascinating, um, this is also problematic in sci-fi. Um, an example was a writer who Three agents were telling people average length for the uh, sci-fi novel was about 110, 125,000 at that time. And he, and he raised his hand and he said, but I love describing things. Is it a problem if it's a little longer? And the agent said, well, and they tried to explain. And one finally said, how long is it? And he said, oh, about 650,000 words. And your look right now, deer in the head like, is exactly what all three agents had. But one of the agents turned to the other two and said, you know, this sounds like something you should handle. <laughs> so pulled herself out of it. And I thought, that's the agent I want. Yeah, yeah. That's the agent who can think on her feet. Yeah. Um, but you have to know, is it appropriate to the story? How much, how little? Um, you can have New York Times authors that do a very thin skiff of uh, setting in a full-length novel, but they get away with it because it's their 40th or 50th book, and the reader loves their voice and other things about them. But if you're a newer author or building your credibility with readers, if you're writing any genre that requires a larger context than the room. Um, there was a movie that came, a book that came out a couple of years ago that was called The Room. And it was about a young woman who was kidnapped. Emma Donahue, I think. Yes, and had a child and their first world was The Room. So 
after explaining a little bit about it, a couple things, she didn't go into details. It was when they left the room. And then you got a point of view that things has changed and you're not comfortable anymore because they've been let out of their prison. So if you just orientate and then when the transition to a different type of setting, just go a little deeper and think about the, what does the reader need to know at this point and how much? One of the things that I hear or, or that writers hear a lot is that um, protagonists and characters should interact with and engage with the setting. So like what are, um, like as opposed to just being blanket told about it, it's like what are some of the ways that characters can engage more effectively um, with, with settings? Well, your point of view character is going to have the deepest response because the reader can experience that more, but they can watch another character who feels uncomfortable in that setting. They can watch a character who feels very much at home and how dare they um, when that character is feeling very fish out of water. Um, so you use that contrast. Um, you have, it's kind of like, if you get together, if you have siblings and you get together and you start telling stories and everyone has a different version of the same story, not one story is correct. It is different experiences. So you can show you, if you have two characters, one who wants to leave as fast as they can and one who wants to stay, very different responses to that setting. So by using the contrast between how one feels and how the other feels, and not understanding um, one will have to give up either going or staying in order to, that's the larger story content. I love that so much. And that is actually a tool that we can apply in other areas as well. So like um, quite often films and books will have two contrasting, like a protagonist and a best friend. So like Spock and Captain Kirk Mm -hmm. Or like Dr. Watson and Sherlock and, um, um, and oh, I had it gives you a larger ver Jekyll and Hyde, another one. <laughs> context when you get that contrast, but you could also have that's the growing pattern for one person, whereas one person wants to thinks that this is the world's best place to live because they've never been anyplace else. Mm -hmm. And, or the person who feels that they first get into a new situation and it, it's scary because it makes them feel uncomfortable. And so you can have different characters learning from one another. How do you adjust to um, this type of environment? that type of thing, but you don't have an environment if you're not showing anything. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. And um, what about like sensory details or in fact, details at all? What kinds of details make a difference in, in creating rich settings? Well, I'm glad you brought up sensory details because that's one of the most overlooked and easiest ways to enhance a setting. And think of about it in your own real life. You know, sometimes you go to a large city and you love that vibrancy by the horns honking and the noise and the sirens and the, 
everybody shouting and all that type of thing. But if you just say it was very busy, um, Nora Roberts, I studied her amongst other writers. And one of the things that she would do to introduce a new character is they were in, a, when they were introduced, there were three sensory details, like two smells and one sound, instead of simply assuming that we all only use our sight, um, because that's not the case. And it is, smell is one of our primordial, we smell something before we often see something. And those smells can trigger a positive response, a negative or a neutral while you're trying to figure out what that scent is. So my, my background is in psychology. And this was one of the most fascinating things to me because um, the pathways for our uh, smell sense run next to or on top of, I think it is, the pathways for memory, which is why when we smell something and it triggers a memory really strongly, it's because the synapses are like cross-firing by accident, but it's because they're they're like on top of each other. And I just think that smell, it, it's my, for sure, my favorite um, sense and for sure my favorite scent, scent, sense when used in fiction I messed up that because I'm writing a book called the scent of death um because I love smell so much um but yeah I love 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 that I think that is um amazing and if you have a default that you like like that with the sense of smell practice then more on sound oh yeah that's a good point going someplace sit down close your eyes what do you hear Mm. and how would you write that practice taste a lot of us just forget taste, but you can taste dust. You can taste that brine of the ocean when the waves are high. There's a lot of, so it, if you're good at one, gold stars you. But in <laughs> order to enhance, try some different senses to see the feel of something. Yeah, and with, with touch as well, so many people forget that it's also like heat, like temperature and pressure and vibrations. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that is so, so, so true. Okay. I wanted to ask about hooks as well. So let's talk a little bit about what a hook is like and why they are so important. Well, oftentimes when we're writing a book, we think the premise of the book or the, um, the character is going to carry the reader all the way through the book. But the reality is the smart writer is going to find ways to constantly be engaging and re-engaging. So hooks are, hooks raise questions or responses in a reader without even realizing that's what's happening. So you know that you're reading a good book with who understands hooks when you plan to go to sleep at the end of the two hours you allocated for them and it's four o'clock in the morning and you keep thinking next chapter, I'm just going to, and instead you have to keep reading. That writer understands that the power of hook is not a one-time event in the story. Mm -hmm. It is constant re-engagement at key places in the story. What So like, what makes a good hook? A good hook raises a strong enough question in the reader's mind um, 
again, there's, I always feel like it's some kind of um, AA program because everything's, you know, 10 or 11 steps, but there's different hooks that can, um, depending on the genre or the subgenre that you're writing, can enhance so that you're not simply, you know, oh my God, we're going to die at the end of every chapter and go on to the next, because that hook gets watered down really quickly. Or the unique character where some unusual character comes onto the scene, that can be a hook to lead you from one chapter or one scene into the next, because you want to find out more about that character. So it is just this constant, it is not manipulation of the reader. It is guiding them deeper and deeper into the story so that they are not just, again, the newer we are as writers, the more tendency we have, just wait till you get to page 254, something really cool is going to happen there. And it's like, uh-uh, if you can't pull me in, on that first page, that's when you get, we'll buy a book in a brick and mortar bookstore. Is that first page mate? if you turn that page, it's almost hundred percent guarantee that you will buy that book. Uh, one of my personal obsessions is collecting first lines and first sentences. I, I love to examine and deconstruct like a first sentence but I would love to know from you what you think makes like a good first line a good paragraph a, a good kind of opening page well if you actually look at the best writers who do hooks first line matters the end of the first paragraph matters too because that's going to bring you a little bit further midpoint in the page another hook in there and then um, near the end of that first page to turn that page over. So on that first page alone, you can break it down to a minimum of five places that you want, opening sentence, end of the first paragraph, end of the middle of the story, end of the story, that page, and throw an extra one in there. Um, but the point is, is that you have to know too many hooks create too much tension and so if you're writing something that doesn't have a lot of tension and faster pacing, you can overwhelm the reader right away. Other hooks are, I remember reading, working with someone and she, every end of the chapter, her character either vacuumed, took a bath or went to bed. Oh, and it no. got to the point that it was like, dun, 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 dun. is it going to be the bathroom this time or the bath or is it going to be, maybe she can vacuum in the bath and then she will kill herself and I don't have to keep reading, which is not the response you want your readers to have in the story. So something that can be helpful is to have a beta reader, somebody who is not necessarily a writer, um, and you're asking very specific questions. You're asking them questions. Where did you stop reading? Just mark it with a flag. Um, where, and you ask about the setting too. Where do you feel really like you know where the characters are and understand them more because of the setting? And if they don't mark anything, that gives you a hint that there needs to be some work done. Um, because you can have a great book, but no hooks and no setting context, and you're gonna lose readers. 
and they're not going to have the same experience with it. Do you, and I'm probably testing you now, so feel free to say no, but do you have any examples of what um, maybe things that you've read that are really good hooks or things that you've written yourself that are good hooks? I know that um, like uh, for me, um, and actually we can take TJ Klune, um, um, of late I've been reading a lot of unlikable characters or like you know disagreeable protagonists and they all have a formula so every single first sentence and literally I've read like three or four of these books now and every single first sentence follows the same formula and it's something that should be seen as acceptable or perhaps you would have empathy for a person they're very grumpy about it in the first sentence so they're like immediately disagreeable like um I think the first sentence goes something like Patricia was crying Wallace hated it when people cried near him or something, you know, like something along those lines. So like, it's a really, it's a controversial statement and the character has an opinion about it. And it's funny because we're like, oh, like clearly he shouldn't think this or whatever. So like that so hooked you me in. Yeah, I wanted to know more. Exactly. Because I was like, oh, what a dick. I want to know more about this character. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't know if you have any favorites or, or like perhaps just, yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah. Um, I don't have off the top of my head. I actually, I'm constantly reading. Thank heavens for all of us. Um, but I don't read in my genre. Ah. I read in all genres. I go to the library all the time and they have new books. And it's like, let me test myself and see something. If it doesn't intrigue me, I put it back. And this is a really good exercise for people to do, to go to a brick and mortar store or go to a library. And don't go to the section that you normally go to. So if you read mysteries a lot and love them, get over into the romances. Or if you do the romances, get over in the sci-fi and start pulling books out without looking at their titles, without looking at their names, without looking at the back cover blurb that's often written by somebody else. Open that book and does it engage you? Mm. And when you find one, you've just learned how important it is because oftentimes it can take people 17, 30 books. And that means either the writers are getting lazy, which, or their time frame, or they're so tired they wanna kill the, the characters. Um, but you're doing that as a training for yourself uh, to learn to where are amazing what you, can you learn from different writers? Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of my time deconstructing uh, what other authors do. Um, and I almost feel like the books that are the hookiest have, the authors have almost copywritten that first sentence. Like that's what it feels like to me. It's almost like copywritten prose because it's so sharp and so impactful in that first sentence it's almost like a sales pitch to me I wanted to show you these were some books I just got finished this isn't with the the flags yes that oh. is my life I my house is where sticky tabs come to die yeah. <laughs> I love it and three times you know? <laughs> yeah exactly oh I love that so much what like are there any mistakes that you think people make with with hooks or what are the most common errors that people make? 
One of the most common errors is not understanding how many hooks are appropriate for the genre that you're writing. And it's so, different, I take it. Oh, it is. So the, the higher tension in the genre, so something that is uh, um, sword and sorcery fantasy, uh, that is a urban fantasy, that is um, romantic suspense or suspense or thrillers, those have more hooks. Um, there's 10 universal hooks. You're going to find oftentimes at least eight or nine hooks in those first sentence. Now you put that into a cozy mystery and the writer is going to feel like, oh my God, you know, this is going to keep me up too late. And so what happens is writers can get, instead of looking at other published books by published authors, meaning you're going to learn what meant that a publishing house invested thousands of dollars in publishing that book. So there's something in it, might be the premise, but usually you're going to look at those hooks from a, you pick up a book from 20, 30 years ago, and they're not going to have as many hooks mm. because the competition for entertainment was not as high. Um, but there's still some amazing authors. And again, that exercise where you go in and you grab the book from the library. I've had people grab a book and it's by Shakespeare, or it's by Tolstoy, or it's by somebody. And it's like, you're pulling it because of the author's name. You're not pulling it because that's really engaging you. Mm -hmm. And writers want to think that the hardest part is just writing the story without realizing there's all this other part to understand the context of getting published and staying published and growing as an author. Oh, you're making me think thinky thoughts. I love this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. I, I'm, no, no. I'm, I'm currently writing a book called The Anatomy of a Bestseller. And it's all about showing, it's not about like, you know, um, well, I'll tell you what it is about rather than what it's not about. Basically, it's about teaching authors how to look critically at, at the best books in their genre and deconstruct them to mm -hmm. find out what those authors have done. Because that is how I've taught myself to write. And I thought that everybody did that. And not like, exactly. not, not everybody does that. So yeah, I am basically uh, trying to take out of my brain what is intuitive um, and trying to make it uh, tangible and um, step-by-step so that- so that Relatable. Yes. If that's a word. But yeah. this is how, um, and then having, giving enough, because we're all told show, don't tell, but we're mm. not told how to do that. Mm -hmm. So it is, someone thinks that they're showing not telling because they have a dialogue and it's like no you're still telling in that dialogue you're not mm. showing it oh I love it this has been amazing um okay this is the rebel author podcast so tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel <laughs> yesterday um no <laughs> tends to be um my mother said I was born asking why. <laughs> I didn't cry when I 
came out of her. I was, why does this work? Why does, what's going to happen? If the, so uh, a couple of years ago, my husband and I were in Thailand and I was looking forward to going to Laos, um, but they closed the border. They saw me coming, they closed the border. <laughs> I took it personally. So, but there's a lot of boats on the Mekong River, which is the May River and Kong just means river. So when we say Mekong River, it's like May River River um, outside of it. But you can pay a boat guy to get you across the river. So, <gasps> yes, come on, honey, let's go. I, you know, it was only about 250 baht. I, we can do this. Well, I found out getting into Laos, it's really easy. Getting back to Thailand, not so easy. <laughs> oh my goodness. And my husband was standing there trying to explain the logic. And it was just, it was a matter of, it was interesting, but it added to a book I wanted to write about being aware of the consequences because, uh, they did not want people from Laos coming into Thailand. They had too many people who were trying to escape Laos. And so we just paid them a few more baht to let us go through. <laughs> oh my God. So you paid your way through. Oh my God. Yeah. So the lesson learned is bring plenty of baht. Yeah. So that you, because you can't whip out a credit card and, pay anybody. So just make sure you have enough cash in different pockets. So it doesn't look like. Oh my God. Know. You are fantastic. That is hilarious. I love that. Like you just rebelled your way into another country and then had to deal with the consequence and rebelled your way, blackmailed your way back out. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, that is amazing. Thank you so, so much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books and anything else that you would like to add? Well, um, uh, my website for writers is Mary Buckham, like a deer and a pig on writing. And I teach usually monthly classes. There's evergreen classes, which means you can access them at any time. I teach multi-week classes. Um, so I believe May is coming up uh, four or five weeks of writing for romances. I just finished one on body language for writers, but it's all the types of things that I had to learn. And when I went to look to help other people learn the concepts, they were not a lot of books out there. So I just wrote the books and Amazon, of course, you can find it. Um, and if you can't find it, you can just email me at Mary at Mary My husband picked that email address. So he knew I would not forget who I was as I went out <laughs> into the world. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a giant thank you to all of the show's listeners and an even bigger thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Mary Buckham. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I am joined by the one... The only Becca Syme. You do not want to miss this episode because fuck me, 
It's a good one. I will see you next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.